0: Hello and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. I was taught in, in when telling a story or telling my story, I start, I tell you what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And that's the message that I try and carry, and that's why I share in common with all of you. Um, I'll tell you that today, um, I'm back in society as promised in the big book. I have a regular life. I have a job. I have a car. I have insurance. I have uh, all those things that a normal, ordinary person can have. Life is grand. I have just something different than I did little over eight years ago and that's a matter of perspective and that's what you'll see as i tell you my, my story this story is not much different than anybody else and i don't tell it to try and what i tell tonight um i hope uh, that it's not something to disqualify you from a all of our stories are different but there's going to be some common traits and some people might feel, oh, I didn't do that, and I didn't have that in my life, therefore I may not be an alcoholic. Well, that's not the point. You'll see what I'm talking about. Additionally, while I am a strong proponent of the uh, fifth tradition that we're, or the singularity of purpose, um, my story does include other substances, particularly cocaine. Um, but I will tell you this that there was always alcohol involved, and whenever I went back to that depth, it was always started through alcohol and that was always part of my story. Therefore, I am an alcoholic um I started life fairly easily my my father was in the military. Um, He was a World War II bomber pilot and had spent 400 days in a uh, prisoner war camp in Germany. My mother was a half-Jew who uh, actually wore a star in Germany, from Germany, um, worked for the Jewish underground, and was a uh, displaced person after the war. She went through the war when she was 14 to 18 years old on her own with no family and survived. Um, she ended up meeting my father through the uh, through the military. She came down here to Tampa, and uh, my father was stationed out there, and she set up the library services out there, and they met um, and traveled the world. And my brother, who's five years older, was born in Italy, and my father decided to get into missiles and ended up in Malmstrom Air Force Base up in Montana, and that's where I was born uh wasn't there long when they both uh, retired back down here to Tampa. They both got degrees in education. My father became the business uh, division chairman out at St. Leo University. My mom got her psychology degree uh, and her master's and became a psychologist in clinical psychology uh, throughout the state of Florida, uh, working for some large organizations and things. And I can remember way back, I was about three years old, and when she was in classes, I got volunteered as a three-year-old to go into the psych class to do the intelligence uh, uh, testing. And so I became the gu- guinea pig of her analysis for many years thereafter, and that's where it started. Um, I had normal, normal um, upbringing. My parents were much older. Um, my dad was 44 when I was born, and my mom was 39. So they were much older than I am. my brother by five years. So I was that young kid around quite a few older people. All my cousins were much older than me. I was more along the line of my second cousins, and I can remember at a very young age wanting to be older. And what I saw people doing to be older was drinking. My father made wine. My grandfather was a um, an importer of alcohol from Europe. Um, and I saw that as a great thing. And I went to the private schools. I can't say that my parents ever did anything wrong to me. Um, they provided me with everything I needed. I just felt at a very young age that I was not able to relate to the kids around me. I remember being very alone i was held back a year um because of my age i'd started school early made a lot of good friends and then by first grade was held back again or held back because of my age and i can still feel that today that abandonment issue that a feeling like oh well maybe i'm not good enough. I, I i can't relate they were older and i remember at the age of 8 um i had a neighbor who's uh they own a very, very, very well-known steakhouse. And um, his name, my neighbor's name was, was uh, David, and his father's name was Byrne. Um, you may have heard of that steakhouse. And um, I used to hang out with him, and when he turned 10, his father gave him the greatest <laughs> gift of all that I could ever think of. He let him drive the, the Jeep on their property. And he gave him a beer and a cigar. I said, you know what, that's got to be the best thing you could ever have. And I demanded the same thing when I turned 10. And I got, the, my dad looked at me and smiled and said, okay. And gave me a beer and I smoked that cigar and they were going out to dinner. And I spent the, that whole dinner in the back seat of our car, quite green, while they went inside and ate. But I associated that that alcohol, that drink, that cigar with Being adult, you know, that feeling I could relate to some other people, that we do these things and then we can belong. Um, I found that out in my traits when I was in high school. Um, It's very competitive. My parents being educators, education was so important to me um, that you know it was highly competitive, and that was their actual emphasis—that I had to succeed, I had to be number one, and I had to be there on top. Um, I I I I never felt I could do that. I, I never felt that I could be that number one person. So. I learned very quickly how to uh, blend in with other people, what to do. I became the chameleon because I found out if you you don't have an opinion, if you don't have to tell somebody what you're really thinking, you cannot be judged. Hey, what do you think about this movie? Well, what did you think? I thought it was great. Yeah, you know what? I thought it had some great parts too, even though I might have thought that most of it sucked. I could still not be judged on that. Hey, what political party are you a member of? Well, I'm a so-and-so. Really? You like those tenants? Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I could probably do that too, even though none of that was really in my heart. Um, I started using the opinions of other people around me in order to formulate my own. And in so doing, while it was very easy and left me from being hurt, I found that I started losing myself and didn't know who I was at that point in time. Um, I remember my first drink was at a high school party out in some place in Carrollwood. Um, a little different than it is now. It was at a lake, and there were not, hardly any parties uh, or, or any uh, houses around. I think Dale Mabry at the point it was, uh, was about a two-lane road, and now it's four to six lanes. Um, and there was a little lake, and they called it the Cliffs, and I went out there, and I was in ninth grade, I was 14 years old, and I discovered beer. Didn't really like the taste of it, but man, four or five of them at that point, in that age, in my height, and my size, I found myself empowered. I felt loose. I felt like I could talk to people at my age. I felt like I could talk to girls and not be uncomfortable. They frightened me. They still do. <laughs> um, I was funny. I was better looking. I fit in. And that was it. I was much taller. Yes, absolutely, much taller. And it was, it was great. And I found that that was a great source. But then again, in school, I realized the small private school I was going to, it seemed like everybody was doing it. It was the normal thing. Go out on the weekends, uh, do these things, you drink. You know, a lot of people were smoking dope, and I tried it once or twice, and I found out I don't like that at all. It made me go to sleep. I felt dizzy. It felt like I was filled with Elmer's glue and wanted to be stuck to the ground. And I ended up getting sick and vomiting. Um, I think I have an allergy literally, to, to that stuff. But alcohol was a dream. Um, by the time I hit college, I, I did okay in high school. I was in every club. I could fit in with any group. And when my friends who were a year or so older than me left, I think that's when I had my first um, depression. I had no longer had those people around me for my opinions. So I had to do it on my own. And not wanting to start over, I kind of became a recluse. Um, but then I went to college. I went to a college up in Georgia and um not having any friends there I did what most people do, I thought. Um I bought my friends. I joined a fraternity. Woohoo, everybody I have friends right then and there and they have to do what I say and they're always behind me and it's like a big club. Well, you know what fraternities are like and this was a dry campus. Uh, Not so much in the frat house. And it was there that I was actually introduced for the first time at the age of 19 um, to a chemical in a white powder, um, cocaine. I found that when I did that, I could study harder, study longer, and I could drink more. Um didn't last very long. That was in my last semester there. My grades were going down the tube. So my dad pulled me out of there and sent me to St. Leo College where I went on a full ride because my parents were both professors there. It was great. Um, I felt comfortable there because people knew me, specifically the, the, the teachers, because my parents had both been there. They had retired for, at that point as professors. They had health issues. Um, but uh it was great. And I started to excel, but I still had that habit of drinking and the occasional cocaine binge would come across as well. Um, In the first couple of months, I tried to go into the ROTC and I was going into that and I met a young girl who was friends with a lot of people there. Um, And I remember my dad saying, you know what, the best way to get to study is find yourself a long haired dictionary. And I was like, what's that? He said, meet a girl that's smart and inspire you to study. Well, I found this girl, and she was telling jokes, and I love a good sense of humor, and, and uh, we started dating. And shortly after we are dating, she, we would go to this little bar here in Tampa, and, and she didn't drink a lot. She'd have a glass of wine, and I'd go through my stuff and end up having her drive me home. She looked at me and says, you know what? I don't like you when you're drinking. I think it's kind of bad, and you scare me a lot. Not that you're going to hurt me, but that something's going to happen. So, so what do, you know, I've got to make a choice here. And she said, it's either that stuff or me. Well, at that point, in my drinking career, it wasn't attached to me that hard. And I said, you know what? I think I'm going with you. And I quit. I stopped. I stopped drinking 100%. I stopped using cocaine 100%. I hit the books, took a double major, taking 28 hours a semester for two years got a double major in English literature and business marketing because I wanted to go into law. I had been inspired by a friend of mine's dad. And I said, what is law? but the selling of an idea through language. And that's what I did. I came out with a three, four, which was, a, you know, a, I think it was a, a cum laude degree, a magna, but they switched the year of the semester that I was going to graduate. So it was just with honors. Um, and I decided to go to law school. Um, Went to law school up in Baltimore, was away from my family, still didn't drink, still didn't drug. I knew some people had offered it to me, and I said no. I did go out occasionally for beers, but it was not that often. Um, and then by the time I got home in those three years thereafter, my, uh, my girlfriend at that time said, what are we going to do? Are we going to do anything in life or not? And we got engaged and decided that we'd get married as soon as I got out of law school. Well, to skip ahead, things were great. We had a lovely apartment. My family was doing well. Um, well, actually, uh, by 19, while I was in law school, my mother had had a brain tumor, which left her, um, incapacitated. She had the, 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 the personality of a child. And could no longer walk very well. Um, So my brother was now taking care of her. My father was taking care of her full time. And I was married. And then it came three most beautiful blessings that I could ever have. And those were my three children. Uh, My wife and I got got a house. I started my own practice. Life was grand. Everything was going great. Still no drink. Maybe occasionally a beer on a happy hour with a couple of friends. But after a while, with the stresses of the mortgage, I started my own practice. I started doing all these things. I started being working hour after hour after hour. And I said, gosh darn it, why doesn't somebody appreciate what I'm doing? And I started thinking about what is going on here. My wife was at home. She didn't want to work. That's not what I anticipated. It's not the model I had in my mind. And I started going out. For time on my own with a couple of friends of mine and hitting happy hours. Those happy hours turned from Fridays to Tuesday through Fridays. And I would come home late and I'd be drinking and, you know, I never really was questioned. But the resentment inside of me was growing of of appreciation. And I felt my family walking away from me and that I deserved more. I was the breadwinner. Why am I not as recognized as I should be? Well, my practice started, was booming and I started getting these clients from these places that, you know, most attorneys either thought would be kind of a neat fantasy to have and I started getting them. I started representing most of the bars in um, the Tampa Bay area. Um, And I'm not talking about, Liquor bars, I'm talking about clubs, strip clubs in particular. Many of the young women in there um, came to me for child support, other issues. I didn't do First Amendment law, but it's ended up being a healthy portion of my practice on the side, you could say. Because I really, my wife didn't know much about it, a couple of my friends knew. But it was kind of like a little glamour thing I had going on. Well, in that life, I was reintroduced, while I did happy hours, to cocaine. Um, I was working at this point in time from 6 in the morning till 8 o'clock at night, and we had made an arrangement with my wife that, you know, it might be better if I came home for dinner and then went back to the office. Well, that's what I did, and then starting at 8.30 in the evening so I could work longer, that's what I told myself, I started getting cocaine, and I'd be working till 2 o'clock in the morning. It ended up that I eventually was hardly ever coming home. And in the middle of those nights, my oldest daughter with with the sister next to her would call me about midnight, Dad, where are you? You coming home tonight? And the angst and the anguish and those things that went on involved with that, along with the stresses of life and feeling everything is going away, just my life started to turn into whirlwind. My drinking no longer and my drugging no longer became that fun party I deserve to be able to take care of and have fun into a necessity where I'd be up all night and the first thing I'd think of first thing in the morning is how am I going to stay awake during the day? Okay, I've got to be able to make it through the day, maybe a drink, I need something to calm my nerves down, and then it will be a blend of everything. My eyes started attracting, going attraction for something else. And it was that something else in a bottle, in a baggie, in a skirt, whatever it was, I was chasing. I was looking for something to make me feel satisfied, and I couldn't find it. I remember to the point that it grew where I was in my depths and darks, and I sat in a corner, and I had one person over here next to me who was doing drugs, and there was another guy over there drinking, and I was thinking, you know, they're stealing all my stuff, my alcohol, my drugs, and i like, but I know they're not. I just feel it, and it's obsessed, and, it's, and I th- sat there thinking, I'm nuts. I'm crazy. I'm absolutely crazy. And I thought it might be permanent. I thought I couldn't get out of it. I tried to quit and couldn't. I'd make it 12 days and then say, you know what, I deserve a reward. I can do it now just a little bit and then boom, another binge would go off. And I wondered at that point sitting there next to that table in dirty clothes, a suit that was filthy because I'd never change, and whether or not I'd ever be able to come back to society and life again. And I resigned myself that I was most likely going to die like this. Um, I blew out my sinuses from what I was doing. And the next thing I know, um, I found an alternative and it came in a stem, the stem fast diet. I lost weight really quick. I'm a diabetic. Things weren't going well. And I got to say one thing about that drug. It's both a curse and a blessing because it took me out four months. At the end of four months after going through that stuff like crazy, uh, I was out one night and went nuts. And I hadn't been home in four or five days. And in those four or five days, um, I was out in a, in Ybor City city. <laughs> I was wearing a white dress t-shirt or dress shirt at the time. And I had buffalo wing sauce dropped down one side of it. And my shoes were untied from both broken laces. I hadn't shaved in two or three days. And I was out to score another, another thing to keep me awake. When the next thing I know, a police officer was trying to come up behind me. Funny thing is I recognized the police officer because he'd been in my office two days before where I had barricaded in my office and trying to keep my wife from getting inside there. And I refused to let the law enforcement get in there as well. I was extremely paranoid. And he came up to the side of the car and he asked me to set out and said, your wife has put out a bolo for you and a Marchman act. Or not march it was a Baker act and we're here to take you in. Do you have anything on you? And he patted me down. He, I had a pill kit bottle in my pocket that for my um, diabetic medicine, and he pulled it out and put it on the back of his car and sat me in the back, or on the back of the trunk of my car, and he sat me in the car, and he went through it and was checking the people, what he waiting for a sheriff to come take me, the proper authorities to take me to the crisis center. When another sheriff's deputy pulled up, took the pill bottle, opened it up, and inside there, there was a crack rock. I don't know how I got there. Honestly, I don't know if it was the person I was with. Maybe I put it in there. I don't remember. But instead of going to the crisis center, I ended up going to jail. I don't remember being booked in. And apparently it was, must have been a site because when I look at my booking records, it's got the wrong name spellings. It says that I have no next of kin, that I was unemployed, and all sorts of other stuff. It had been picked up that I was an attorney. And that record, um, I would have plastered all over the newspaper. I don't know where that came from. I remember being in jail and calling my, or there making my phone call. And I called my wife and said, "Hey, uh, I'm in jail." She said, "Okay, you're safe." <laughs> and I said, um, "Yeah. Um, have you got an attorney yet?" And she said, "No. I, I talked to your attorney, and you know, I don't know what they could do as far as bond and all that stuff." I said, "I'm not talking about bond. I want a divorce. Did you get a divorce attorney yet?" Here I am in jail, calling my wife for a bond or bail, and I'm asking for a divorce attorney at the same time. Talk about insanity. Just a little bit. Next morning was my my prelim court hearing to determine bond, and there's the judge who I practiced in front of for 10 years. He read my name and then couldn't look up at me. He refused to read the charges, saw that I was trying to make bond, and that I was supposed to go to the crisis center, and he sent me over to the crisis center of ROR. The night before, I sat in my room crying, my little jail cell with the little room up here at Orient Road in my orange my orange clothes, they wouldn't give me shoes, and they wouldn't give me socks, and they wouldn't give me underwear, because I was a crisis listed. Suicide watch. I remember calling my brother from that sale as well, and he said, Hey, Steve, can you help me out? He says, You're right where you need to be. He hung up on me. It's the most alone I've felt in all my life. I talk about loneliness, because I suffer from it. Never could identify I was trying to fit in, and there I was truly alone. I did my foxhole prayer, made it to the crisis center. That's an entirely different story I can't tell you about, but, or I can tell you about, but it takes up too much time. But that's where I was introduced to AA. I came out, and I were actually to the twelve steps. It was another program, a Christian-related recovery program, and I met my sponsor there. I actually had one and wanted me to go through and call him every day and. And write down all sorts of every time I lied and all these different assignments. And I was like, oh, wow, I don't want to do that. And ended up, he didn't have much time for me, but I found another guy. I said, why are they doing that? Do you want to get well? I said, yeah. He said, you want to get well for good? He said, yeah. So what are you willing to do for it? I said, whatever it takes, man. I can't do this on my own. He said, well, man, that's what you need to do. That's what I wanted to hear. I have a lot of guys, people say, I don't want to do it one day at a time. He says, no, it's for life. Maybe you stay sober for one day. Maybe you live life for one day. But We'll talk about that. And he took me through the steps. And the way he took me through the steps is he read the book book to me. He read it to me. We highlighted. We did those steps. And I got to step 11. And I said, you know what? I'm feeling great. And I revealed those things inside of me. You know, we're a lot alike, us alcoholics and addicts. I find that I've never met a stupid alcoholic. I've never met a stupid addict. I've met some stupid people, but they weren't alcoholics. You know? We have this thing in our bodies, this gauge, this meter called emotions and intelligence. And while on a normal scale, I think that most people like a radio scale from 88 to 100 and I don't know, what's it go up to, 110 maybe? Then you got the frequency in the middle, up and down. And if that was our emotional scale for an addict and an alcoholic, it would go from 10 to 250 and be ramping up and down and the up and side down, looking like a lie detector for, (laughs) I can't say, one of our politicians. You know what I mean? It was going nuts. What do we do? We try and soothe that. We try and figure it out. We reach outside of ourselves to fill that hole in our gut, that emotional void, that vacuum that we can't seem to sate. So I reach for a bottle. I reach for a drug. I reach for soft and warm. I reach for somebody to say, hey, you're okay. When the thing is... And I've never been reaching for the right thing. I did say it's an 11th step. Oh, I'm feeling much better. God, I got it now. And I went out to make amends to some of those people I'd hung out with. In a very short time, I was out running again. i have been arrested. I had those charges coming up. And for seven days prior to my arraignment, I was out. And I mean out. Knife at my throat. Somebody car was blown up pretty much. Hanging out in in an apartment with somebody I barely knew and somebody else. Living in the same clothes for seven days and I lost 40 pounds in seven days. Stem fast diet. One morning I realized I had to be in court for that arraignment. And uh, I, I didn't know what to do. Life was whirling around me. I couldn't think of anybody else. I couldn't think of anything else except the pain that I was going through. And I said, I'm going to end this. So I ran to the kitchen of their their apartment, and I reached in a drawer and grabbed the knife, the biggest knife that I could find, and it was a serrated bread knife. I mean, sharp. And I was about to yank it down my wrist once I heard something. Something caught my attention and said, you know, that's going to (laughs) hurt You know, God comes to us in many ways. Mine has a sense of humor. I said, well, okay, I'll try it someplace else. So I tried it on my hand just to see what it would be like, and I pulled and dragged that knife across my hand, and the blood started to come, and I screamed, ouch! And it hurt. I said, I'm not going to do this. At that very moment, my phone rang. I hadn't answered it. They'd been calling, but it was a number I didn't remember. Then... It was my attorney saying, are you going to come down here to this court hearing, or am I going to have to issue a capius? Capius is a bench warrant. I said, I'm coming down there. He said, how long is it going to take you? Well, uh, give me an hour, hour and a half. He says, no, you're going to be there in a half hour. So I grabbed my stuff, washed up a bit, stole a pair of jeans that were a size 28. I'm normally a size 34, 32. Put them on, they fit me. Stopped by Walgreens on the way down to court and bought one of those nasty nylon Hawaiian shirts, bright yellow with sailboats and palm trees, you know. Um, I was given a ride because my car couldn't drive. I dropped off at the courthouse. I said, I'll call you when I'm done. You can pick me up. I had full intentions of leaving that place. I walked in front of the judge. And she was a judge I'd practiced in law in front of for many years. She looked at me, and I walked up smiling, and there was my attorney. I looked at the prosecutor. It was a guy I worked with and took the bar together. The other one was a prosecutor who I've been known for many years. And she said, I walked up to the judge and said, Good morning. She said, Mr. Tedrow, uh, your wife has informed us of what's going on. And I looked at the back of the room, and there was my wife. She wouldn't smile. (laughs) I smiled at her, and I said, okay. He said, we're going to give you two options. You can either go to jail, or you can go with this guy. This guy walked up, blonde-haired man, and I recognized his voice because two days before, I would listened to a voicemail message, and that voicemail message said, hey, man, you don't know me, my name's Tim Sweeney, uh, but I can help you. I have a solution. And I said, I'm going with that guy. I didn't know where I was going, but I'm going with him. I didn't want to go to jail. And I was whisked off to a treatment center. And when I got to that treatment center, all of a sudden I realized, well, actually on the way out in the elevator, they took my cell phone and took everything from me, and I rode down with my wife in the elevator. And I looked at her and I said, thank you. To this day, she thinks I was being sarcastic. Today, I know she saved my life. And I was grateful. Um, I got to the treatment center to do a three month program. I didn't know it was three months and I really didn't care how long it was going to be. I finished, I called my sponsor and he came to see me and he said, What'd you expect? I said, What do you mean? He said, We've gone through the steps. He said, No, we didn't. He said, You hadn't done step 12 yet. You hadn't finished the steps. You were still suffering from untreated alcoholism. And I know what he means today. For me, the 12th step is the solution. Working with another alcoholic. Sharing the message of hope. Being out there to tell someone that you've been through hell and back and that they can do it also. And to guide them to a higher power. All-knowing. All-encompassing. That can relieve you of your alcoholism. And if you don't believe me, look at me. So I went to this treatment center, and I remember a big weight being off my eh, off my shoulders. I didn't have to worry about anything. I didn't have to worry about what I was going to do. I didn't have to worry about the, you know what's going to happen. I was all gone. I knew at that point in time, I didn't know what I didn't have to make a decision. I was in no place to make a decision. I couldn't. I was there for about sixty days, doing well. When all of a sudden a funny obsession came back to me that I could probably do this in a safe manner, and I relapsed in treatment. Sixty days, I'd seen so many of my friends get their sixty-day chips and ninety-day chips, and there's something about that. Those first sixty days, seeing somebody get that when you only have two or three days, oh my God, I, don't know, I can't. It's hard to explain. It's hope. But I relapsed, and I realized that. I was holding on to something, I was holding on to a lie, I was holding on, I didn't think my wife knew of my philandering, is the best way to put it, or maybe not to the extent. And I went to my counselor and I told him that after I came clean about relapse. He said, well, one, who needs more treatment than a person who relapses in treatment, right? And he says, okay, Toby. Well, let's let's assume you don't tell her. I said okay. Said down the road, you know she's going to find out, and then she's going to get a divorce, and she's going to get half of your stuff, and you're going to she's going to get the kids, and you're going to see your kids every other weekend. Or you can get divorced now. <laughs> Either way, it's going to work out that way. So I said okay, I might as well tell her. It's a program of honesty. And I sat down and I told her all my stuff and laid it out on the table. And she looked at me and she said, Toby, what's the matter with you? "Uh, I'm an addict. (laughs) Uh, She said, I already knew that. You just needed to know. On that day, I decided that I had nothing in life. I had given it all away. My family wasn't pulling away from me. I was pushing them away. For my all my insecurities and not being good enough or being judged or not. Be, I had pushed them away. And I realized that I, I came into the world with nothing. And if I got anything back, it was going to be a blessing. And on that day, I thought I got my first thing back. My wife and my family. From there, recovery went on. I graduated from there. I met good friends in this program. I started a meeting with two of my closest buddies in recovery small little trailer. Started off with three of us and a couple of sponsees. And it's now the Tuesday Night 164 group. Spread out to to a speaker meeting. Because my sponsor always said, there's only two meetings you really need to go for in early sobriety. That's a big book study. A solution-based meeting and speaker meetings. So you can identify and you can see where the solution comes from. Back in practice, the charges were dropped. And all prost. I live a wonderful life with my family today. I am so proud of my children. I I am so proud of my wife. But my perspective has changed, as I said in the very beginning. It's not about the successes of money and things. It's what I can pass on to you and to my fellow man. It's difficult practicing law and doing that. It's all about argument and contention. I have a hard time with it sometimes. But I'm there to represent people and to advocate for their interests. That I can do. And I do it with tact and honesty, which is not very prevalent nowadays in the legal profession. I have a wonderful side job. I I get to shoot and teach firearms safety, and I love it. I don't need all the material things today. And I've learned how to love. I know what it means to be able to love my fellow man. I can see everyone around me as I'm going to quote my wife, as children of God. But some of them are cleverly disguised as pigs. Um, But I was wrong that day when I realized that that was the first thing I got back from God. And it took me five years to figure that one out. I always thought there was something missing, you know. I was trying to fill that hole in my gut with, like I said before, the bottle, the drug, or the companionship. I realized I was trying to fill those things in a God-shaped hole. The only thing that could get me was to be able to realize I'm never alone. My Lord, my Savior, my God, my higher power. My mentor, my ultimate sponsor is within me and always has been. The book tells me so, and it's a true promise. Because only therein can it be found. I suffered from ego, and I, I was filled with myself. That cup in my soul was huge and filled with me. And I tried to empty it, and I tried to empty it, and I filled it back up. And I was told later in life that, you know, maybe you don't need to empty that cup. Just get a smaller one. And I did. And I try and live a humble life. I try to do acts of mercy for others around me without telling anyone else. That's my goal. I don't want you to know. I get a lot of satisfaction about that, and I get it from my soul. But I was wrong. The first thing I didn't get I got back, was not my family. My first thing that I got back, my Lord gave me my higher power. Was sitting, when I was sitting in that kitchen that day, about to drag a knife across my wrist. Not seeing anything else but dark horizons. Not even thinking about my kids. It's not personal. It's not thinking about my friends. It's not about them. It's the end of suffering. That day, God gave me back my will to live. And that's what it was all about. On that day, a spark lit that I could try and move on. That's the greatest gift I've ever had. Ladies and gentlemen, life is worth living. And I said at the beginning, like my sponsor said, it's not one day at a time, quitting when drinking, maybe when starting. But you want to live one day at a time because it's beautiful. To see the miracles around us. How God affects us in so many ways. The birds, the flowers, things that don't seem to have meaning, all of a sudden take shape. And they don't have to have the meaning. It's just there. For me, it's life. And there's nothing more beautiful. I thank you all, and I thank AA. And I thank all those people in my life now, and those all whom home to me,